welcome to Literature for Life. My name is Jess and I am the host of this lovely little podcast. Um, This is a podcast where I speak to a wonderful guest about the stories that mean the most to them. This podcast, look at me already tripping up my words. This podcast is part of the Femon Collective, uh, basically a bunch of awesome women chatting about awesome things. Um, So my wonderful guest today is Rachel Heatley. She is a truly wonderful colleague, travel enthusiast. I'm not sure there are many countries she has not been to in the last 12 months. (laughs) Um, Irish and proud, witty and thoughtful and charming, and therefore will in the future make one heck of a psychologist. Rachel, welcome. Wow, what an introduction. I think you might have over-egged the pudding there, Jess. You kind of, yeah, maybe set me up for the fall. I, I mean, I don't know that anybody's ever called me charming before, but I'll take it for sure. I'll take that. I mean, maybe not to your face. Maybe they don't want your, oh. maybe they don't want to inflate your ego, you know? So maybe they're just like... Feel free, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like my head's grown an inch or two. So I, I'm I'm happy enough. But no, that was, that was a really nice introduction and much appreciated. And I could say many of those things about you also. In fact, quite a few of them. Ah, thank you. But importantly, you're a lovely colleague and I'm really glad to work with you although I have no idea where you brought me onto the podcast but I'm happy to be here. I have brought you onto the podcast because you always have wonderful insights and you're always willing to chat about your experiences and that is what this podcast is about. Okay okay yes Yes. I see where you're coming from now. (laughs) So how are you today? I am really good thank you it is a lovely sunny day from uh, South Down, which is uh, where I am on the east coast of Ireland, right on the border. Um, Brexit. Um, <laughs> uh, bit of an issue. Uh, so uh, an hour south of Belfast and an hour north of Dublin. So that's my current geographical location. But uh, that's where I'm from. But I did live in London for many, many years. But as as you say, Irish and proud and super happy to be living back home in a small community with uh, my clan, the Heaton clan. I believe, so I think you said not uh, not that long ago to me, like walking down the street is like a big old social Mm -hmm. occasion. Like you could just be like, I just need to, I just need to grab, I just need to grab some milk. Yep. And then you'll be like 40 minutes of this person and like 30 yeah. minutes of this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've actually had to turn into a bit of a hermit because I can't take, I can't, you know, people say, oh, I'll go for a quick walk at lunchtime. It is never a quick walk because <laughs> my dad's the eldest of nine and pretty much all of my family are within half a mile from me. And the town that I live in is about 9,000 people but when you live in a small town all your life and if that many family who work in shops and social care uh and my mother and father um I remember an ex-partner of mine came to visit and said your parents are like the mayor and mayoress of Warren Point and um, <laughs> a bit it's like walking down the town with the rat pack they know everybody it's crazy so yeah so, so if they are mayor, 
if they are mayor and mayoress, what does yeah. that make you? Uh, oh, goodness. Uh, first daughter, I suppose. Would that be right? <laughs> yes, yeah, get know. a badge. Get a badge that says that. <laughs> I was trying to think of that uh, really bad movie with Katie Holmes, where I, I think it might even be called First Daughter, where she's the daughter of the president. It's an absolute stinker, but one that you would watch maybe on a Saturday afternoon or something. So. Hungover, like you just yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, like 1990s rom-com sort of vibes, but not Oh, yeah. So yeah. Perhaps First Daughter, but... Um, and actually, that is what I'm often referred to. So my dad's nickname's Dickie. And people will say, oh, are you Dickie and Mary's daughter? Or um, here, uh, we'll say, if you're the eldest, you will say, <laughs> sounds really inappropriate, and I'm saying it out loud, but are you are you Dickie and Mary's big one? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, um, are, uh, quite pretty much all of the family have pretty large noses and um uh some I worked in the factory temporarily that my dad worked in for 30 years and uh a gentleman not a man let's just say came into the office and I was standing he got to see my side profile and he goes oh you must be Dickie's daughter and I was like oh um, okay that's oh, rude self-conscious yeah. Yeah. yeah oh yeah wow yeah. you're a real charmer so I was like yeah. mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no denying it so honestly yeah, i'm looking forward to your memoir in like <laughs> oh, good you know, god no a yeah. couple of years because i could listen to you chat about ah, this yeah, come on come for on all time yeah <clears throat> well we'll see um especially because i still live in london and like if you know if you try and smile at someone you know i know they'll give you a sidestep and, and think that you've so, kind of you know escaped from some sort of place yeah that's london okay cool so um what piece of literature have you chosen to speak about today i have chosen one of my favorite books of all time and it's called the power of one and, and i promise it's not a self-help book although that would be fine too uh and it's written by a south african called bryce courtney and um it's a coming of age story about a young boy who we're first introduced to um he comes from an English background it's 1939 and he has been sent off to a boarding school with uh surrounded by Afrikaners and he is the only English the only boy from kind of an English background we're never entirely sure whether he came directly from England or that's just his kind of background. But I had I knew little to nothing about South Africa, but I do love a coming of age story. So uh, the little boy, he um, is unfortunately referred to by the Afrikaners. We never know his real name, which I always find really intriguing. And he is in uh, what I would say is probably one of the most brutal situations I've heard of for a five-year-old where he's bullied and brutalized. So I have recommended the book to friends who many of whom have stopped at the first chapter and said, what kind of like problems, social problems have you got, Rach, that you would recommend this book? But it gets so much better. It follows him through the course of 
about um, five, 18 minus five, 13 oh, years. Don't even ask me about maths. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I, yeah wow, I was embarrassing <laughs> as hell. I mean, let me just call Luke, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody, you got to call somebody. I was like, get the calculator right. But moving through, you know, primary schools, I'm not sure what the terminology is in South Africa, but primary school right through to secondary school. And it's about key people that he meets in his life that shape his future. And he meets some of the most incredible people you could imagine. And some of the people he only spends time with for a couple of days and they change the whole course and direction of his life. And um, I love it for so many reasons, uh, some of which is I loved learning about South Africa. I had no idea about the geography. I mean, I knew where it was, but I didn't know the geography. I had no idea how large the country was. I had no idea uh, about the language you know all the different languages yeah and I I felt like I learned a lot about it and I have read the book maybe 15 times 15 one one yeah, five 15. okay perfect yeah. this is the book uh, for this show Go ahead. yeah okay. yeah yeah and I've listened to it on an audio book as well I love an audio book of late so I what I loved about that was I got the pronunciations then of what the actual okay, said was, yes which I was on board with but yeah it's it's kind of following this child as he he's he he, he becomes all always all, he's on the cusp of manhood let's just say that and it takes you through his um his early years and his experience of racism in South Africa. Now, I'm 40 and I was eight or nine when Nelson Mandela was released. Um, and I had always known about apartheid, but I didn't realise the depth of the brutality and just the language that was used. And I, I, I have... Um, I've come to realize, having reread the book in recent weeks, just how stark the language is and how how much uh, black Africans were denigrated. So as much as I find it an uplifting book whenever I was younger, I find it quite a, quite a hard book to read in recent years. I think as I've become more aware of race of um you know the I think the Black Lives Matter movement and I also have now South African friends so I've gained insights into the language into the experience but and um, it still remains one of my top five books of all time. Wow. Oh this is I'm smiling so much because this is this is literally the perfect book for us to be chatting about. I'm so excited yeah. to get into this. Mm-hmm. Um cool. and also, because my family is from South Africa. Uh-huh. So it's one of very... the other reasons I told you. <laughs> yes. so I was like, you'll get it. 
I know. I, I, I definitely get it. My, um, so I found, I find South Africa to be an incredibly complicated, mm. um, and incredibly, it's beautiful. It's a complicated, beautiful, incredibly torn and hurt and battling country. Um, mm. I can't see that changing um anytime soon mm. um in fact i just think it's getting worse um oh, i as a as a person who um was born in south africa and moved to uh the uk when i was six just about six um and most oh, of my family you know you were that old when you moved oh okay. yeah yeah um i i never really learned about apartheid until i was in my teens my my family just didn't they just didn't chat to me about it the front door really yeah and I it's not that I wasn't aware of race um or the importance of treating people equally because I will I will say that my my family well I can't speak for the whole uh, my mum and my so my mum especially and my Omar I think they always did their best they always did their best to like um make sure that I as a child was treating people um you know it fairly equally like not making assumptions based on race or you know anything like that um yeah, but yeah. I, I can't remember and I might be doing I might be doing my parents a disservice they might have had a lot of chats with me and I just couldn't I, I just can't remember yeah, but yeah. I can't remember a specific time where um I was like sat down and told and told about it you know I guess mm-hmm. and I actually would would like to have a, I, I, I should probably have that conversation with them at some point just to be like okay so tell me what it was like actually being mm. in this country when this was happening um so yeah it's an incredibly for me it's an incredibly it's something that is still I still have very complicated feelings about because I don't feel like I truly understand the gravity of mm. what happened and also what continues to happen yeah. even though I've been back to the country several times and I've learned a lot about it and I I just don't feel like as a white person I'm ever going to really get it I think that's fine but also it, yeah. it, it will just always remain a very complicated topic for me especially because a lot of my family is still there so I do always appreciate um uh books that explore it yeah yeah no. well that it, it definitely does and it tries to although it's um there are terminologies that refer to black africans that are you know racial slurs and i realize now how kind of lumping everybody together under one term dehumanizes uh, you know people and reduces the complexity of of personality of culture um and uh and there's a lot of talk about that about kind of the tribes of africa and and how uh you know uh there there is that depth of you know maybe not a depth of culture but references to the complexity of it that i had no idea about about you know the zulus and the shangan and and uh and how different they are but it's it's funny you were saying that um I, I just on reflection talking about 
you know, uh, Africans as being, I wouldn't even say second class citizens, third, fourth class citizens. I'm not sure that that's, uh, you know, terminology wise correct, but certainly what it felt like rereading the book. Yeah. Um, coming from Northern Ireland and being Catholic, there was always a sense, not even a sense, I mean, it was true many times and certainly when the civil rights movement started in the 60s, I felt an affinity uh, because Catholics often were second class citizens. Now, thankfully, not to the extent that when I was growing up, but I, my my mother as a Catholic living in a predominantly Protestant town certainly came under her fair share of abuse and and uh, kind of uh, not not brutalized in the same way that Africans were in the book and obviously in reality, but you know, pretty not nice things happened. And I, I, I there still remains that sense and that shame. Um, I would say, even though with Northern Ireland has become a more secular society, there is still a sense, uh, a little bit anywhere where Catholics felt like second-class citizens. There's a lot of change, obviously, and, and it's currently the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And um that's you know something I'm passionate about and thankful for. But there there certainly was that sense growing up uh for my parents that they were second class citizens and that hangover and that shame still lingers. So I, I so I wondered maybe and I first read this book at 19 in 2002. So uh the Good Friday Agreement was still in its infancy. Um so I, I wonder if part of it resonated because of because of my own background. Although yeah. to caveat that the, the, the high Africans were treated was so, so, so much worse. So Yeah. And I think you can I think you can appreciate the brutality and yeah. still resonate with that with that idea of like segregation and mm. um mm. inequality and injustice, like yeah. They are all such big topics, but also such big feelings. Like Yes. You know, they run deep. They run deep and they are um and they I, I keep coming back to the word complicated because mm. they are. Like mm. they invoke a lot of complicated emotions. They involve um and well I what I hope they do is start very complex and nuanced conversations. Yeah. I that is what I think word. people should be having about mm -hmm. these topics because I think yeah. you know I think there is a sense as we move forward not necessarily progressing that um people who whose uh heritage and whose history is tied up in these things mm. don't really want to talk about it for fear yeah. of maybe uh, offending someone or getting it wrong or saying the wrong yeah. thing but I feel yeah. like you should take that risk if it means that you are facing that sort mm. of honestly and with compassion and you know I I I I think it's an important conversation to have and that's why I'm very glad that we are chatting about this mm. book. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, but part of me even in my head was like, be careful what you're saying here, Rachel. Make sure it's right, get some context. But I I, I think if if um there are different systems in place. And there aren't opportunities to mix on an equal level, 
then things can't get resolved. So I can only speak from from experience here that you know education is still massively segregated. There isn't much integrated education. Um, Catholic maintained schools. So um, I which I went to. I went to uh, not much fun. I can bloody well assure you. Uh, primary school run by nuns. Secondary school run by nuns. All girls primary. All girls secondary absolutely hated the 14 first 14 years of my life um and um well actually yeah from well things were pretty good from four up till four and then <laughs> went to primary school at four and it sucked <laughs> oddly. um yeah yeah and and I was fortunate because although my mom had a tough time growing up uh, it meant that my mom has four sisters god i should know off the top of my head yes four five five sisters and um all of whom almost all of whom married protestant men so i was in a way lucky growing up because i got to meet i mean my family were protestants or a mix or certainly well cared very little about religion yeah perfectly honest so whenever there were friends of mine in school or even family here in one point who never got to mix with Protestants I did and I was like oh they're just the same as me you know they have you know they have these similar problems and insights into things that maybe are be slightly different to mine but it's important that you get that and you realize that we're all human at the end of the day and actually back to the book we are all African. We are all descended from Africans. So our skin color is different, but blood runs through our veins. So um, it's it, it's pretty sad how color plays such a, a big part of always. I was going to say modern day life, but it's it's all, always you know, yeah, always yeah yeah absolutely. Um, okay, well. I'd like I'd like to um chat a little bit more about exactly why you love the book. Like and don't worry about spoilers. <laughs> when I don't worry about what? Spoilers. Because when I first oh, started spoilers, recording, I yeah. Think. When I when I first started recording these episodes, I was like, yeah, like we're gonna try and avoid spoilers. And okay, then I just had okay. like a bunch of them and like you can't talk about the book without giving away, like without giving sure, away sure, spoilers. Sure. So you're a listener and you are planning to read this book just you know see how it goes if you need to pause and come back that's totally fine mm-hmm. um but yeah so don't worry about spoilers um okay yeah I'd, I'd like to get in to sort of really why you love like why you mm. love this book because mm-hmm. I'll be honest I haven't read it um mm-hmm. I'm hoping my listeners are laughing because again at the beginning when I started recording I was like I'm really going to try and and read every book and uh, that's not happened (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I'm the world's slowest reader um so I am relying on your Mm -hmm. love of the book really okay sure 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 that makes sense uh (laughs) well I'll delve into the book but I also think probably need to give context to how I came about the book is that the right turn of phrase yes um, please do yeah um well uh I will say I got the book at the most seminal moment in my entire life so I 
I was lucky enough in my second year of university to get to study abroad. And I went to the University of North Carolina, where they talk real slow. Uh, and it was uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And, and I was the luckiest I have ever been in my life. And I doubt I'll ever be so lucky again. But I, I don't need to be because I already got my lifetime's worth of luck by ending up in an international dorm and meeting the best people I have ever met in my life who are still my friends to this day. In fact, I was slightly late for our podcast, only a minute or two, but um, uh, talking to one of my friends from Vancouver. Oh, who, lovely. Uh, I love uh, deeply. So um, one of my friends who I met in the dorm in North Carolina, uh, Ray Allen, uh, Ray, uh, who is incidentally from Chester, who I have the deepest respect for and deepest love, she recommended the book. And I was at a point in my life where I had been been very unhappy in my first year of university and as I said I hadn't been very happy in uh, high school either and always kind of was was a bit full of shit really <laughs> trying to uh, pretending about who I really was trying to fit in a um, little bit of bullying but like we're not talking about Angela's ashes here um, I you know, and, and just kind of fitting in with girls who maybe like I, I, on reflection didn't share the same values with. Not to oh, say they yeah. were bad people, but we, we weren't aligned on a deep level. Yeah. And then this is gonna sound a bit hippie-ish or a bit airy fairy, but I met my soul tribe in America. And so these were people from around the world and they changed the course of my entire life. My life, I always think about it as kind of before Carolina and after Carolina. Um, and as I said, Rhiannon, who I respect, encouraged me to read the book. And I think that's why it has such a depth of meaning and that I will have that connection because it. I, I see the cover of the book and I'm back in the International Dorm in North Carolina and... So I, I I cannot convey to you how much of a good time I had. No, I didn't do too much studying, unfortunately, which is a, oh, is but a that's minor, the best. That minor is the best regret. Past. Yeah, past but past. the university in Belfast were arseholes because they never told me. They told me, ah, go and enjoy yourself. This will, you know, this doesn't contribute to your overall degree. And I was like, oh. I'm gonna have a billboard okay. time then. Yeah. Like one of the days I I because you get you get um you get uh uh I, I think it was 10% of your grade in America is just showing up. Well, of course it is. What? And yeah, yeah, attendance forms like 10% of your grade. And I didn't always show up. Uh, <laughs> and like for example, one day I was like one of my pals, Rachel, was said. Rachel, do you want to come skydive? And I was like, yes, I do. Oh, so wow. we just hopped in a car with this lovely American guy, Michael. Didn't really know him. Oh, just Michael. went skydiving, you know? It was kind of that sort of time. So 
that is is why the book really speaks to me and I um Rhiannon incidentally is a judge now so I call her ma'am uh and her she's one of the most deeply moral people I've ever met and uh I I just if 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 she says something's good it's good you know <laughs> I trust I trust okay. her so implicitly yes. if she says it's good it's good uh, okay. so I thought right I'll give it a go so um, so as I said, <clears throat> this was a seminal point of my life, and I met people who changed the course of my life for the better. And in the book, the little boy, PK, who we we initially don't know his name, and then he gets given this name uh, by an Indian shopkeeper who he probably has an interaction with for 20 minutes. And that becomes his name. That is the name that he adopts. And he we never know his surname. In everything, they make a point of it. He's just called P-K. P-E-E-K-A-Y. Oh, I and love that. You could read so much into that, but we correct. right now. <laughs> you know, it's funny. when I, 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 As I say, I've read this book so many times and I take something different from it every time. And I thought, oh, I love that. why don't I know what his surname is? Who is he? What's his real mm. name? Um, well, so he grows up in the Natal, is that right? Correct. That yeah. is absolutely correct. And he's called Barberton. Oh. Uh, and, yeah, because um, there's a very large, um, very large Indian community. And I think there has been since like the 1930s oh, in really? um, KwaZulu-Natal. Um, okay. I think largely initially in Durban, but it's, 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 they've really embedded like they are now like part of the fabric of Natal I think to the point where like um okay. you can go to David and get like bunny chow which is essentially a loaf of bread with the middle they they get a loaf of bread they they slice it in half no no they cut it in half they pull out the insides of the bread they fill it with curry I'm on board it's I'm good. fully on board yeah. so right. I'm glad that I'm there's curry. like yeah yes. I'm glad that there's like a very influential yeah. Indian character and I say influential because he's he literally gives the, the main character his name which I think is great because you it shows that like you don't need a character to be there the whole time for for, for them to have an influence so mm -hmm. well the the PK as a as a five-year-old um as I said is it's 1939 the uh bullies in his boarding school are very much aligned to Hitler and pro pro Germany in uh World War Two, and this poor little boy is you know comes from English heritage, and um he has no support network in the school. He is torn from his African nanny, who literally he suckled at her breast like she is his mother because his real mother. Uh, had a nervous breakdown and that's why he was sent off to this boarding school. We never hear anything about his dad. Not once is his dad mentioned. We're not entirely sure why is, you know, uh, and we hear a lot about his grandfather. So his grandfather and grandmother lived together. He's sent off to the school and then out of nowhere, um, he is pulled out of the school and he finds out that he is going on a train journey that lasts two to three days on his own. 
at age six to go to this new town that he's never heard of. And along the way, he meets a train conductor called Hoppy Gronwald. I think that's the um, pronunciation. And Hoppy is just the embodiment of kindness. And he is just a wonderful, almost not even a father figure, well, but partially a father figure who is a boxer. And this young boy knows nothing about boxing, but along the train journey, uh, he finds out so much about boxing and the um, the dictum, I think is the word I want to say, that he learns from Hoppy Grunwald, which he takes throughout his life, is first with the head and then with the heart. And I loved that because I kind of tend to lead with my heart in things. I tend to get that a bit kicked around the place with a football and I've grown up. I am, I hope, a very loving person, but I think more deeply about decisions now. And I will be guided by my heart, but also my head. It's so, so romanticised, though, that whole leading with your heart. Like, uh, it's just so romanticised. And so we think that's what we should do. We yes. think we should go into every yeah. human interaction slash relationship with our heart mm-hmm. on our sleeve like it's the like ro- like what we are trying to achieve is romance and like no mm-hmm. what i'm trying to achieve is stability correct <laughs> and i can and right. get that yeah. by using my head to find yeah. the right person correct <laughs> i know I, I don't aim for happiness anymore which sounds grim but i aim for contentment and yes. i guess that comes from leading yeah. with the head and not the heart yeah. but um the direction of this little boy's life is so shaped by this train conductor that he decides he wants to become the welterweight champion of the world. He realizes when he puts on the boxing gloves that they are the equalizers, that he doesn't ever have to be bullied again. He finds a defense mechanism and it leads him on a pathway to boxing. That wasn't even remotely a consideration. And as somebody who knew nothing about South Africa and nothing about boxing, I felt like I learned a great deal. So he arrives at his new home, which is in Barberton, and he's greeted by his mother, who has turned to religion and has become a born-again Christian. And he, uh, his mother has sacked his nanny, the person that he loved most in the world. So he is bereft. And he, along the way, um, he is, he he's devastated. But he comes across, or a doctor, a German doctor, who is a doctor of music, not a medical doctor. They, he is befriended by this doctor. I'm getting into this bit of circuitous story, but um, Doc, who the character becomes, um, named Doc. Um, he takes PK under his wing and becomes the greatest friend he will ever have. And he teaches him music and he teaches him how to think critically. And he teaches him Latin. He takes this little boy who has been traumatized and bullied and puts him on a pathway to 
I would say enlightenment. Maybe that's too strong, but he he shows him love and he loves him back and he loves cacti. You know, there's all I've learned about cacti that I never <laughs> thought. So there's so there's so much to learn. But anyway, the backdrop of World War II is never far away. And unfortunately, as an alien in, uh, I think that's how you refer to somebody, yeah. um, a German in South Africa, and I believe Doc never declared himself. And so he is imprisoned oh, uh, yeah. in the local prison, Barberton Prison. And the he is the only white prisoner. All the rest of the prisoners are black. And through this, there is a boxing team and little PK asks to join the boxing team and his dedication and determination and enthusiasm lead him to learn so much about boxing. And he comes across a prisoner called Gil Pete, which means Yellow Peter. And he's called Yellow Peter because he is mixed race. Um, okay. in South Africa and by all accounts he is the lowest of the low you know a, a kind of a unrepentant criminal you know a serial criminal and yet he turns out to be the most incredible boxing coach he shapes this helps to also shape this young boy's life and it follows him through World War II and as he develops as a boxer his relationship despite Doc being in prison continues. He meets other characters who really help shape his education to the point where you know he's almost a genius. And um there's so much more to this, but yeah he ultimately goes off to a really fabulous prepart no a wonderful school in Johannesburg where he comes across his other best friend, a Jew called Jaime. Uh, Jaime Levy and another outsider so it's 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 kind of he meets so many outsiders that he connects with because he's an outsider and and um his boxing career develops and he is he is beloved but on reflection you only see things through the protagonist's eyes you only see it through PK's eyes so I I love it but my recent rereading of it I thought how biased is this <laughs> how 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 much does he inflate his ego we're talking a lot about ego today but um his interactions with black Africans really almost he they are subordinates to him and that is one of the elements that I never clocked before but I see it now so um, reading through the books, well, I'll think about this critically, Jess is asking these questions. Yeah, there we go. Aha, uh-huh. uh, well, I see this a little bit differently now, you know. So um, I kind of blathered through that there, but as I said, it's a coming of age story. It is a beast of a book. It is quite uh, yeah. hefty. It sounds like... that as well? Yeah, so it sounds... <laughs> one of my questions, I guess, is like, what makes you care enough to read through? Because that's a lot of plot, like a lot happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What makes you care enough to want to keep reading? Like, mm. it, it, you know, is it is it PK? Is it um, the sense of like, um, 
is it the se- is it the sense of like like he's sort of reaching towards an unattainable goal um is it that kind of sense of adventure because he's going all over the place right mm-hmm. yeah i i think i love it because he's gone from such a vulnerable place and he meets these incredible people and i think that's very hopeful and i i think i think the Shawshank redemption hope is the what is it hope maybe the greatest thing and i think i read that when i read the book when i had been lucky enough to experience that because i think there were times where prior to going to america i didn't feel very hopeful i didn't i certainly wasn't happy and then i met these incredible people and as you said i'm a travel enthusiast had i not gone to america i think it's highly unlikely that my life would have ended up that way that I would have traveled all over the place that I would have lived in London and so I think for me seeing PK go from just this tiny little boy that is feeling hopeless and and completely disempowered and on his own and then meeting these people who are full of kindness that he learns from on the way and who shape his life for the better that I, I think it's it's a journey of hope, really. And I think that's why. So I love PK, but I would say I love people that he meets even more so. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's yeah, perfect. Think, yeah. yeah. Um, there are a few things that I wanted to um, maybe explore, just, just mm. from what you've spoken about. Um, mm. I'm... And I, again, I haven't read the book, but I am interested to know a little bit more about the role of um, the nanny. Mm. Um, is she, and this is just from my brief research, is she, mm-hmm. is she Zulu? She, she is Zulu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mary, Mary Mandoma is her name, but oh. he always calls her nanny, but that turns out to be her name. Yeah, um, because I do find a kind of, a, quite a trope narrative around um the black woman especially the sort of mothering black woman if that makes sense Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um i i've seen a lot of characters the black nanny um Mm, the black maid um and they take on an exceptional amount of emotional labor or additional Correct. Emotional yep. and unpaid labor. Now I know she's mm-hmm. his nanny. Yeah. But it sounds like she was essentially filling that sort of mothering gap yeah. for a Absolutely. long time. And mm-hmm. so I think the fact that she was just cut out quite brutally. Does she come mm-hmm. back to the story? Nope. She just cut out she's cut out by the mother volumes. Yeah. And it's that is because I think in in during a time like apartheid from what I've read and learned there was Mm -hmm. a lot of brutal um treatment but there was also this like undercurrent insidious nature which I think continues Mm -hmm. where something like that would happen so like you're in our life like you have a nanny you're in our lives you're taking on all this emotional labor and then you're like the person who employs you, they can just cut you out. And then all of a sudden you are no longer part of their mm-hmm. lives. Mm-hmm. I think, and that, that doesn't just happen to 
black women that happens to you know that can still happen in today's world but I do think it is a good example of one just one type of that kind of insidious behavior Mm -hmm. um that I think was used as a bit of a um a bit of a tool almost like a tool of oppression because a lot of black so many black women in South Africa were employed as nannies and maids and still are employed as nannies and maids Um, really oh gosh yeah oh yeah even even now like it's very it's incredibly common for Mm. um people to have a black maid or a black house cleaner or you know and i i know using the term i know using the term black is is a catch-all and i don't want to do that because i'm glad that that she had that zulu identity because Mm -hmm. there are so Mm -hmm. many incredibly interesting and beautiful parts of the zulu culture that i Mm -hmm. and i I only got a glimpse of that in my in my previous trip but um so i'm glad that she had like that that he gave her like a somewhat of an uh, an in-depth sort of character if that makes sense but it It does it does that was interesting interestingly as part of the story uh uh, PK is um, uh, matched against a black boxer of a similar age and when they're introduced it becomes clear that Nanny, Nanny's, he is Nanny's son Gideon Mandoma and the shock that resonates between the two characters um, and it we begin to realize that as they're the same age, Nanny was his wet nurse, and in order to have breast milk, she must have been had to give up and live away from her own son. Oh and gosh, yeah. the, just, just the, that, because you see him as as Nanny is this is uh, um this mother like figure because he never he doesn't love his own mother. And yet the sadness that I felt when I read, you know, that she had her own son, that she had her own family, her own life. And how did she end up here? You know, I I think it was it was um, perhaps poverty that drove her to do that. And it just it just made me realize not even with color, but often poverty, how many women have to leave their children to go and work and and send money home and I I just find that deeply emotional and you could tell in the book that Gideon and PK it could have turned out very differently but they see themselves as brothers and that and and so in a, a and on a parody with each other and and that sense of equality um between the two of them is beautiful and yet the outside world does not let them have that parody. Gideon is a black Zulu. And yet, you know, being a Zulu and full of pride, and um uh I think he is also a leader in his tribe. I, there's a terminology I cannot remember. Uh it may come to me. And yet he is not treated with respect. I think he's called boy, he's called Kaffir. Yeah, you know, all these different terms and yet with with PK and and Gideon, there's the love and there's a sense of brotherhood. So that is a very interesting point because 
that is something I feel like I had to learn and then almost unlearn like because what do you mean I remember from a, from quite a young age being like okay so there are people of different different colors but um but it's not good to identify color like it's not good you know because I was coming from a there was a point where it was like racism is bad so it's easier not to identify color like let's just let's just let's just treat everybody the same as if they they all look the same you know um and I think I picked up on that as a kid Mm. and so for the longest time I was like oh I don't see color or you know um Mm. and I think that I think that was a narrative and possibly still is especially um uh amongst South Africans I mean I think there's a song that was part of the movie Invictus called Colorblind you know and it's such a such an interesting way to view it because now it's like you shouldn't be colorblind because people of different um different race different cultural heritage different backgrounds they all cut they all come to the table with their own experiences and if they are um black or um you know african zulu every layer to the, to them if it's not white male mm-hmm. cis mm-hmm. will come with a level of oppression and discrimination that we have to recognize mm-hmm. and so yeah and so i mean this this book came out in when it come out in like the 70s or the uh no uh, interestingly the late 80s Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes sense because I think for a long time it was kind of like, oh, we don't see color because we want to treat everyone the same. Whereas now I think it's more like what we want to strive for is we see color, we recognize mm-hmm. all the layers of complexity and discrimination and oppression that that comes with. And we recognize mm-hmm. that and we put in place um structures that create equity so yeah so it just that just triggered something that I remember I I can't remember when but I remember coming to this realization like oh actually trying to not see color is not is not what we should be aiming for yeah yeah um, we need to be authentic if that makes sense like if that makes sense um you know it's funny we're talking here I always feel um, like I shouldn't, it it kind of ties into what you're saying. I I feel like, who am I to be talking about the Black experience? Who am I to be talking about, um, you know, people of of, of mixed race heritage? I'm constantly worried about using the wrong terminology. And uh, I, I think one of the things that I, found on rereading this book is that this is told through the, the eyes of a white male South African yeah. and interestingly there's actually a follow-up book called Candia and it's the kind of the female protagonist and and how her journey evolves and in South Africa and she is mixed race she is Indian 
and her father's Indian and her mother is black. And it kind of shows the other side of the coin. So I would I would recommend it as well. It it doesn't get as kind of highly rated reviews, but I loved it as well. But it's also a beast, I think, another 500 pages. But, um, you know, although in that sense, it's another, it, you know, Bryce Courtney is a white male South African. And actually what I forgot to say at the start was, it's a semi-autobiographical book. So yeah. this really ties into his life. And then he, he's a white, well, white men can write stories, uh, you know, from from the perspective of females, should they so choose. But I, I think some of the reviews I read about Tandia, the follow-up book, were about that not as authentic. Um, mm. Although, as I said, I loved it yeah. also. And I think... I think it's great that you can read that story and know mm-hmm. where it's coming from and acknowledge how that impacts on the story. You know, mm-hmm. because as a as a white guy from South Africa who if and I, I kind of got a sense that this was semi-autobiographical. Oh JD, okay, interesting. Well, just from I did a very, very quick research into the mm-hmm. author himself. Um, and so if it fits, like he grew up at a time where, you know, he's battling with what's going on in this country he wants to feel like he's doing the right thing but if you are embedded in that culture mm, then mm-hmm. possibly mm. thinking that not like something like okay the right thing to do is to not see color that makes complete sense and so I think it's as a reader I think you know you can be a reader who reads for pleasure you can be a reader who reads for meaning you could be a reader who reads for you know um knowledge and all of that stuff doesn't matter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you can you can acknowledge what you have done is mm-hmm. is is no is read this story well all acknowledge- those things really yeah and also acknowledging the fact that you have been like i know this is a white guy from you know this is a white man from south africa whatever mm-hmm. and acknowledging mm-hmm. the impact that that would have on the story yeah uh, having said that, though, I, I, you know, because I've read it for different reasons, and I, I, I feel like the job I've been doing over the last couple of years, you know, you and I are colleagues, I have um, gone from a role that's communications, there's a point to this, by the way, I've gone from a role that's communications to very much research and policy, and I've, I've been taught to think in a much more critical way and in a much more holistic way. And I think that's helped to shape how I view the book. I see things, uh, I see the bigger picture now and I'm very grateful to um, my bosses, Fiona and Stephen, for for teaching me that skills, um, teaching me that skill. But um, so now I need to read a a really good book that kind of feels authentic because otherwise I'm like, Mm. oh my gosh oh, okay this, this means, is where um, you know I, I think this is where we ask our listeners for recommendations <laughs> uh, oh yeah for sure I recommendations love love for big old chunky books that this yeah. critical yeah, thinker yeah. can read and are bloody good you know that's what i'm looking for you know yeah um but yeah okay so you've given us a lot of a lot of the context so yeah uh you're in your first year at uni um 
No, yeah. first year? Yeah, yeah first uh, year second year. Second, second year, year at uni. uni. Yeah. Second year at uni, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. are still reeling from 14 years sort of mm-hmm. in in schools run by nuns. Um, and mm-hmm. just listening to your episode with Rhea, sort of what I can only imagine is wearing like a, a bit of a... Uh, parachute I don't know what we mm, <laughs> like mm. real interesting you yeah so and your friend recommends this book mm-hmm. and you you talked about it being a very hopeful story and you had yeah. not and you'd spent a lot of time not feeling very hopeful so tell us about that initial impact so you you you're reading the story mm-hmm. sort of how did you feel reading it for the first time well I interestingly, um, I realized quite young. This is going to get very deep, Jess. So, uh, Love it. Here for this. Uh, so I, I think I um, was aware, but um, in my uh, no, not aware. My subconscious realized that I was gay, and uh, so this is true. This is not the. This is not the story. This is Rachel Haley's life uh talking about myself in the third person goodness gracious me um and I didn't know anybody else that was gay I come from a family where um I have very glamorous aunties and cousins and I was a tomboy and I felt that I had to camouflage myself which PK also does and that you know um square peg in a round hole and I felt very isolated growing up but you know I would never have talked about being gay I just always knew that I was different I never had the language and that's a bit sing-songy the language and we love um, sing-songy on this podcast yeah yeah yeah. and then uh, I keep coming back to America and, and because it's so intrinsically tied to my experience of reading the book, but I met gay, openly gay people as well for the first time, and who, you know, I adored in a in a, a friendship way. But it made me hopeful that I could live a life where I was true to myself, and that. It showed me that I, because I come from a small town, um, the I never saw myself reflected on TV. Anything to do with gay women was always, uh, I, you know, I remember Brookside, probably too young for this and showing my age, but it was the first lesbian kiss on TV. It was Anna Friel was the actress. Um, and I remember feeling a combination of excitement but also shame and that, you know, uh, that this was happening. And the only other gay kind of figure that I saw on TV was Ellen DeGeneres. And she is quite, um, I think, masculine in her dress. And, yeah. and, um, and I, that is not what I'm attracted to. I'm attracted to femme women. And so, uh, and also, I was surrounded by very girly girls, so I didn't necessarily want to be like Alan. And then when she came out, she was, um, you know, 
kind of our career took a nosedive. So again, I kind of part of me went back into the closet. And then I get to America and I meet these people who are living their authentic lives, who come from all over the world, who have religion isn't a thing for them. There isn't any, you know, Catholic guilt peeping up around the corners there either. So I, I felt felt this great sense of liberation and again, rational thinking, life principles, sense of equality and uh, I, I and all those things that kind of PK discovers along the way. And I, I think that was very important to me in that context as well. However, I unfortunately um, went back home after doing my degree, or not doing my degree, sorry, um, my time in America. And that that's the hardest time I ever had in my life because I came back to the status, status quo and where everybody is in heterosexual relationships where there is a, a kind of a, a structure for living your life. And I felt that I had to go back into that. And that was really, really, really hard and horrible. And I didn't break out of that, unfortunately, for another 10 years. So I only came out of the closet to very openly when I was 30. But I still had this book to hang on to Mm -hmm. because I knew at some point I was going to be brave enough to to live my life the way I wanted to live my life and I do and I have and I'm 41 and I've had 11 years of it and it is uh incredible just being who you are I don't have to lie about who I am I don't have to pretend um I don't have a camouflage anymore now do I want or need it um I feel super happy being me. I don't know if maybe that's a bit cocky, but I do. I like myself. Not cocky. In ways that I never liked myself in my, well, teenage years. Big up for liking ourselves. I know, thank you. Uh, That's taken 41 years. Well, no, probably, yeah, 30-something years. But, yeah, so so I think I keep coming back to it, um, and I can't come back to it enough. The power of one gave me hope and it continues to give me hope um that you know that my kind of dictum is the choices you make not the chances you take determine your destiny and for me that has absolutely been true that I as a result of my time meeting these incredible people when I was 19 I discovered a world of possibilities that I didn't even know exist. I didn't even know these doors to these new experiences coming from this small town. I had no idea. And then the whole world opened up to me and I got this confidence. So I took myself and bloody about seven cousins off to Australia. I got to go visit friends all over the world. I got to experience their lives, their cultures that then, you know, made me feel so like, okay, these options are open to me. These are, these are 
dreams that I can dream. These are plans that I can make. Um, and I, yeah, that that's, I mean, goodness, this is like a counseling session, Jess. I wasn't <laughs> I bloody well wish I had a glass of wine or a gin and tonic or something. All right, we're going to take a real quick pause, yeah, yeah, yeah. sisters, because yeah, we got to crack open a bottle of wine. Yeah. No, but I mean, yeah. make that. I mean, your story is incredibly heartbreaking. Uh, also, I'm well, sure yeah. one of many of gay, yeah, know, gay women oh, who grew up around that sure. time. Um, and I can imagine it was incredibly hard because, you know, just from the beginning of the episode where you talked a lot about, you know, where you live and all the people who are around you. And I know that you love living in that area. Mm. And so I can only I imagine, yeah. I can only imagine how hard it was for you to go back to a place where you're surrounded yeah. technically surrounded by people who love you yeah but but they don't know the real me exactly yeah yeah so no, i'm just sending my heart out to uh thank you 20 year old rachel yeah i know me know? too me too i'd love to i'd love to give her a hug and just yeah be like you know what do you know what my relationships with my family and friends have they just have got better yeah. just by being me but I had to meet the people at 19 that lo like very quickly came to love me for me because yeah. they got to meet the real me no I, I didn't come out or anything at 19 but I never I never kind of bullshitted to them who I was like I was so I mean I fabricated so many eyes growing up which makes me feel like sometimes I lie in bed and I think you know even last night so I'm like oh my god why did I say that yeah. when I was 13 oh um, gosh that's the worst you know but yeah the kind of bile rising up at like one o'clock in the morning it's like you don't have to get over it at some point <laughs> but, yeah, but I've like, yeah. been through a lot of therapy you know, those yeah. Those wounds uh, don't don't always heal, but um, yeah, you you fight your way through it. And yes, it was bloody awful for twenty year old me, but I got through it, and I eventually found the I, I don't even think it was well courage certainly was a part of it, but also the words to say it as well, mm. the language. So you have to learn that too. Yeah, but you know, I I kind of have. Uh, there are younger people now in my life who are like 10, 13, 15 years younger than me that have come out, um, young women. And I'm like, bitches, I did all the hard work. So, you know, you're welcome. Uh, <laughs> and, and also, they had me, uh, I like a drunken confessions. And all I ever wanted was a hug and somebody to say, you're lovable just the way you are mm. and I feel incredibly privileged that I was able I've been able to do that for for younger people that mean a lot to me and I think as I said to you I love the characters that PK meets and I think I I, I wanted to I wanted to be that for somebody else and I I, I have been you know, because, you know, people close to me have said that younger people close to me have said that to me. And that that is probably one of the most important things in my life. 
Oh, I feel a bit emotional, but tear up, Bridget. <laughs> Thought I was going okay. to talk about a bloody book. Tears allowed. Tears yeah, are yeah, allowed. Yeah. No, I'm just going back in. <laughs> yeah. So, talking about, you know, younger women sort mm. of grappling with coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm thinking it. I th- it leads me onto my next question, and that they don't necessarily have to marry up, but. Who do you think mm. would benefit from reading this book? Like, would you give this book to someone who who you thought was was grappling with that issue? Or, 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 or just yeah. because you, or, or do you think you keep coming back to this book because of the time in your life where you read it and, and, and that thread of hope that really shone through the story? Yeah, I, I I think it's the the time of my uh, the time of, of my life where it was most kind of important. But I I would say I don't mean like well younger younger people I would I would recommend uh with the caveat that you know there is some brutality there is racism but yeah maybe young people who are are feeling. That they're not sure the direction they're going in their life and that yeah that maybe maybe they need to have that coming of age story to connect with i think yeah yeah absolutely i think i think that caveat is is probably important especially now mm. But yeah, the the racism thing I think is definitely a caveat. If you read it with the view that the language is is racist and unacceptable and very shocking, so I think that's an important caveat. I will also say, you better have time on your hands because <laughs> five hundred um, plus pages is a yeah I'm you so, know you've got a commitment yeah I you know I'm quite I'm kind of glad that I didn't try and read this book before mm. our conversation because it would have been a whole other mm. Mansfield mm. Park scenario sort of mm. oh this is a 14 hour audiobook oh, mm-hmm. well, I guess For I've sure. got a life to live <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> this is this book sounds incredible in many ways mm. and that I just wanted to say a big, big, big thank you for um for not only talking to me about why you love the book, but also sharing your experiences with me on this podcast because you know I I I've not had the same experiences that you have. So I can only imagine that, you know, it can be quite quite nerve-wracking to go on a podcast and chat about this mm-hmm. stuff. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. I have absolutely adored this conversation oh thank you i have too i really enjoyed it i think yes jess's listeners i was very apprehensive <laughs> about doing it but it as as you know uh what is the you know feel the fear and do it anyway i think should be a lot of honor Fear. Um, that's what we're for, going for yeah yeah the fear the fear, the fear. And fear. Do it anyway yeah it <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah yeah for sure <laughs> No, yeah. I'm I'm so glad that you've done it and oh thanks, yeah. mate. This has been so, so wonderful and you are wonderful and this book sounds incredible. So thank you. Oh, not at all. It was a, a pleasure. <laughs>